Amen. Amen. I hope you all listened to Pastor Rob's prayer because I was back there praying along with him, and that was pretty much the sermon. So that's pretty cool. Good morning, Terra Nova. For those of you who don't know me or may be visiting today, my name is Dennis Gardner. I serve as the operations director on staff. I occasionally get to lead our corporate worship time. Uh, today I have the honor of unpacking a piece of the book of Matthew in sermon format. This is not my normal lane, uh, but I'm glad and I'm humbled to be able to do this here for a second time. I went back and forth whether or not to acknowledge the whole fact that today's Halloween, right? <laughs> Last night I went to my first grown-up costume party. Here's a picture of me. Here's a picture of me going over my sermon notes because I was thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> Turns out costume parties are good for introverts. You know, I just put my helmet on my head and figured I can just go over my sermon notes in my head. And if somebody came near me or approached me, I would just go like this. And then hopefully they would walk away. And I think at this point I was actually thinking to myself, I wonder how I can work into the sermon the quote, I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> kind of fit a little bit, but Halloween. Anyway, I think I got the sermon figured out, even though it's on a different piece of paper. Today um, is part two of a three-part series within the book of Matthew, uh, where we record, see Jesus recording um, about the kingdom of God as it pertains to the end times, or the theological term for that being eschatology. For three weeks, we are with the understanding that according to scripture, that the times that we are living in right now are considered the end times. What we're going to do today is we're going to put on our eschatology glasses, our eschatology goggles, and with those be able to try to consider how we should set our minds in these last days, how we should set our hearts in these last days, and how we should be using our hands in these last days. Last Sunday uh, was part one entitled Have This Mind. If you missed it, it is currently living on our YouTube channel. Please go find it there and listen. We got a bit of an introduction there to um, end times theology and how we should be intelligently thinking and studying and understanding what is sometimes a pretty confusing part of our faith. Next Sunday is going to be Have These Hands. Pastor Tori is going to focus on stewardship and how that uh, the parable of the talents and how stewardship pertains to the end times. He'll probably give us a bunch of to-dos and how-tos with a, an end times concentration. Today is have this heart. Now, considering around the office, I tend to be Mr. Pragmatic and Pastor Tory tends to be a little more heart-motivated. I'm forced to wonder whether or not I wasn't assigned this particular sermon on purpose. <laughs> maybe so, maybe not, but... I did think about that during the week. So let me quickly just give a, a quick uh, end times recap from last week. Pastor Tori gave us various eschatological terms like amillennialism and postmillennialism and historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. He left one out, though, panmillennialism. Very important. Panmillennialism, or otherwise known as the pan theory. Anybody heard of this one? It basically just says, eh, it'll all pan out in the end. So, we pan-millennialists, we're just tired of being confused. But the confusion is a reality. It's a real thing. So seriously, I mean, there, there could be so much confusion about the end times, uh, we're forced to ask, why does the Bible even mention it when there's 
such a lack of clarity sometimes. And Pastor Tori laid that out for us beautifully last week too. Why does the Bible talk about the end times? And he laid out these lines here. To encourage us to live faithfully. To have hope for our future. Knowing that we're in the end times. To know God better. Knowing that he's going to be coming again. To rest in the knowledge that he knows. Even if we don't. To endure to the end. And to engage in the great commission. And lest we get bogged down and obsessing over exactly when Jesus is coming back to earth. Pastor Tori referenced a great verse in 2 Peter in regard to us having a mind and paying attention and to have patience. It's from 2 Peter chapter 3 and it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're on a different timeline than God. For you Loki fans, that makes us variants. <laughs> so for today's passage, now we'll jump into today's passage here. Um, today's passage is easy to see the general overarching point or message or theme to this parable is that Christ is going to return at an unknown point in our time, and that is people must be ready. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus at all times as we eagerly await his coming. And just because that point is pretty clear, that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of depth and symbolism that can be gleaned from this very short passage. In fact, it's arguably, I read somewhere, the most culturally specific passage in the Bible of what Jesus told. As I was reading the Bible, when I was reading the Bible as a younger person, I grew up in the faith. My parents started going to church when I was three. Those cultural pieces usually just got a pass. You know, something like reading words such as, New wine and old wineskins doesn't apply to me. Or the workers in the vineyard, right? Or uh, even the prodigal son. We get the point of these parables, but there's so much more to it. And side note regarding the prodigal son, um, book recommendation, strong recommendation. The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. If you would like to read a book that actually does a really good job doing what I just said, taking something that we think we know and blowing it up and, and, and the depth of what Jesus was actually saying in that particular parable, take your time, find that one. The Prodigal God, Tim Keller. But most times understanding these cultural pieces just didn't seem necessary, and maybe you've done the same. Maybe you felt the same way, you know. Today in particular, was the bridegroom marrying ten women? I very well could have thought that growing up, but I'd just go, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter, moving on, I get the point, you know, right on to the talents. But these images and these metaphors, I don't want to go past this real quick. They had rich meaning to the people in Jesus' time, and it was easy for them to recognize these things, whereas us in the 21st century, maybe not so much. We might have a little trouble relating to this story the same way they did. And I don't think that it's overstating to say that there is even a danger in reading scripture with 21st century Western eyes. A danger. The unfortunate reality is where we are here is that we're stuck in time. And Jesus came at a specific point in our time, at a particular culture. And every generation just takes us further and further away from the year 4 AD. It's necessary for us 
to engage in deep, rich study. It becomes more and more necessary. So anyway, this parable for us today, it's going to make much more sense when we understand uh, the Jewish marriage customs at the present time of Jesus. But let me repeat this, please. Let me repeat. Just because the point of a scripture passage is clear doesn't mean there isn't a lot of depth and symbolism to be gleaned from that. Okay? That's not a disclaimer. That's a challenge. And the internet helps. Just saying. You don't have to go to a library most of the time. So the roadmap for today looks like this. We're going to unpack a little bit of history. We're going to talk about some of the symbolism. We'll, we'll talk about the foolish, the wise, and then the nitty-gritty. We'll ask, who am I in this piece? So some of the historical background. It was common for Jewish weddings to take place at night. Very common. Needless to say, with no electrical street lamps in ancient Jerusalem, uh, they needed to have lanterns and torches to light the way. The torches were tools. And this is one of those great examples here of, of reading scripture with 21st century goggles. Like, I've always thought about it as part of the ceremony. We, we may hear wedding and lamps, and we get this picture in our head of this, a new thing that you might see at weddings where the bride and the groom leave and everybody holds sparklers. Right, have you seen that one? Because that could be the image that you have in your head, but it wasn't like that. Incidentally, I've been to a couple of those sparkler weddings, and it's really hard to time, right? Unless you've got a good wedding planner, your sparkler is out by the time the bride and the groom decide to leave. So it wasn't sparklers. It wasn't that kind, of, that kind of thing holding the lamps. The virgins, the ten virgins, had a job to do. And we're going to come back to that particular point a little bit later. D.A. Carson in the uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary, he did a good job laying out for us this historical setting of a first century Jewish wedding. It looked like this. First, the bridegroom with some close friends would leave his own home and he'd go to the bride's house where there were likely a lot of various ceremonies, the main one being the uh, actual wedding ceremony proper, right? And very Hebrew traditional. Sometimes I wish I wasn't a Gentile because I would have loved to have got wedding and just broke the wine glass. <laughs> Mazel tov! Done, you know, time to party. But no, we get, let me be the first to introduce Mr. and Mrs. Jomo Papnak. So after the ceremonies, after the breaking of the glass, uh, it was already nightfall, and a procession would go through the streets back to the bridegroom's house. And everyone in the procession was expected to carry his or her own torch. And it was not only necessary to see having these torches, uh, but it would be assumed that people without a torch were party crashers, or maybe even brigands trying to get in there and, and cause trouble. And I find that to be a really interesting piece to learn, because again, I can't unsee this. That sheds so much cool light on verses 11 and 12 that says, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. I mean, that could have been a very honest answer. You, you don't have your torches. I don't know if you're supposed to be here. And the torch itself was uh, either a lamp with a small tank and a wick, or it might have just been a rag on a stick that was soaked in oil, and it needed constant re-soaking to maintain the flame. The ten virgins were likely bridesmaids who had been assisting the bride, and part of that assisting duty was that they were expected to go ahead and meet the groom at his house for when the groom came back with his new bride. 
And it was at the groom's house then that the banquets and the ceremonies and the festivities would, would normally get underway. And as with many ancient Jewish festivities, it would probably last several days. I'm going to move on real quick here to some of the symbolism here in that picture. So you got that picture in your mind, yes, of all the, the holding the lamps, the processionals, the wedding, the celebrations. And again, one thing that I might be repeating myself that, that I love about learning that this symbolic and historical pieces is that once we see these things, we kind of can't unsee it. And, and thankfully, it then enhances and informs our reading of scripture for the rest of our lives. So take note of these things. It's not just filler. These historical pieces are important. Uh, the first piece of symbolism is the obvious one, right? The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. And this is a common picture in scripture. If you're familiar with scripture at all, you'll see this. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah and in Hosea, God pictures himself as the husband of Israel. And in today's passage, another little piece that might go unnoticed is just a subtle but not so subtle way of Jesus saying to those around him that he himself was God incarnate the husband of Israel. Now, here's where it seems to deviate a little bit from what we generally understand uh, with this kind of symbolism. In the Bible, Jesus is regarded repeatedly as the bridegroom, and a largely accepted implication is that his people are the bride. And, and we get that from places like Ephesians 5, where it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself the savior. And as well as in Revelation, uh, we see phrases often like, the spirit and the bride say come. So there are places where Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. But in this story, it's not the bride specifically that is the clear representation of the church or the people. It's the wedding guests, more specifically, the ten virgins. And this is not a singular, just, just to say that this isn't you know, going off of our regular knowledge of symbolism. This isn't the first instance of this symbolism. Matthew and Mark both have Jesus saying, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? So the guests being likened unto the church um, is also a, a biblical theme. So it's clear here, right, that the virgins, they represent us. Us as in humanity, right, the church. Now, here's a less obvious one that we might not grasp when we're doing this. Uh, but it's an interesting piece of symbolism here. One of those things where you do see it, it's really kind of hard to undersee it, and that's the oil itself. Oil had a major centrality in Jewish life because, as we see, it was used for fuel, for keeping the lights on. It was for anointing oil in the temple as part of the grain offering. Oil was used to anoint kings as a sign that they were chosen to rule. It was used to sanctify priests, to sanctify the tabernacle, to sanctify the furnishings. It was used for cooking, for topical moisturizing. It was used as perfume. And it was a commodity. It was a symbol of richness and prosperity and joy. And to say that somebody was destitute or in dire straits was to say that they had no oil. This is how important this was. And biblical commentators tend to strongly agree that even though it's not always the case with oil, that throughout the Bible, oil's major representation is the power and the presence and the work and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The oil declares something sacred. It declares something set apart, dedicated for a holy purpose, is what we look at when we see oil. And finally, we see the vessels themselves that the, the virgins are holding, the lamps or the torches, they represent the hearts of the ones that bear them. 
So today's sermon being, have this heart. Here's the spoiler alert. Here's the main theme. The main point here is that to be ready for Christ's return, our hearts require regular refilling with the presence and the power and the work and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And they are to be sacred, set apart, and dedicated for a holy purpose. That was a long sentence. Can I read it again? The main point here is that to be ready for Christ's return, our hearts require regular refilling with the power, the presence, the work, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They're to be sacred, set apart, and dedicated for a holy purpose. So how do we do this? What does this look like? Let's look at the players. We'll move on to the foolish here. Where did the foolish go wrong that they merited eternal banishment from the kingdom of heaven? You may remember back in Matthew when we were in chapter 7. You probably won't because I did the homework and it was on May 10th of 2020. So you were probably watching it in your living room. Here Jesus had already covered quite clearly in a very heavy non-parable format during the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21, 23 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. So you catch the similarities there, right? Of course, the Lord, Lord piece and the I do not know you or I never knew you. So this obviously and pretty harshly makes it so that the foolish virgins here represent the non-believers maybe, the uncommitted believer, those who've accepted a false theology or a false doctrine, those with a self-centered theology or doctrine. It's likely that being a lamp bearer for these ladies, for these young women, was an honorable job. And in that way, we can make a faint correlation to modern day brides, bridesmaids or groomsmen, whereas you know they are up front standing in honor with the guests of honor. But could it be that the foolish were more focused on enjoying their status of, of importance rather than being focused on why their place was important? Were they more concerned about the party than they were concerned about the bridegroom and his processional? Were they not understanding or taking their jobs seriously enough? It's probably a combination of all. And when the time comes, their hope is that their association with the wise their association with the true believers will bring them into the kingdom at the end. Give us some of your oil, they said. And this, of course, is never the case. Hear this piece that we're going to take away from this. Hear this. No matter where you are in your walk of faith with Christ, or maybe you're even starting out right now in your faith in Christ, please know this. One person's faith in Jesus cannot save another. Simply and unsettlingly stated, the five virgins without the oil represent false believers 
who enjoy the benefits of a Christian community, but without a true love for Christ. And in that moment, and remember, we have our eschatology, end times, glasses, goggles on here. In that moment, they learned they could not make themselves ready by begging or borrowing or crying. It is to be filled with the Holy Spirit that makes us ready. Yes? Closely examining the foolish here and, and their lack starts to, to paint a picture of the wise. So we can see who the wise are by seeing who the foolish are. And the five virgins who had the extra oil represent the truly born again, who are looking with enthusiasm for the coming of Christ. Now there's, let's talk about preparation for a second, right? Theirs isn't like simply a Boy Scout-esque kind of preparation. They always be prepared. You know, just in case something goes wrong, I can save my own life. This is different, right? The five wise preparation is different. Their reasons... Their true motivation for preparedness, their heart, if you will, is serving the bridegroom on behalf of the bride. That's where their hearts were, with the bridegroom. And if their vessel was not filled, they knew how and where to rectify it due to their brand of preparation. They have a saving faith, and they have determined that whatever occurs, whether it be length of time or adverse circumstances, when Jesus returns, they will be looking for him with eagerness. All right, so, now we get to it. This is the scary part, right? Because now we have to ask the question, who am I in this scenario? Jesus very obviously and very intentionally keeps us ignorant of when he's going to return. Pastor Tori talked about that last week. He made the point very clear that in the last verse of this passage today, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So why does he keep us ignorant? Why do we not know the day or the hour that Jesus is going to come? Short answer is to keep us on our toes so that we stay ready. Because the hard truth is, the scary part is, at the end of this age, in real life, when Jesus comes back, some are going to be ready and some are not. And that should be a sobering thought. This passage should be unsettling to us. If the oil is representative, hear this one, if the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit in our lives as it relates to preparedness to be accepted into the kingdom of God, and both the foolish and the wise had oil, how can we begin to know our own personal status before our bridegroom? I'm going to ask it out loud. I'm just going to ask the big question out loud. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm ready? How do I know if I'm right before God? Because the stakes here are high, my friends. They're high. Our eternity is in the balance. Our eternity with a triune God or our eternity apart from him. And I'd wager that many, if not most, followers of Jesus have asked themselves this difficult question in a moment of fear or panic. How do I know I'm saved? It's a scary question, but you know what? It's not a bad question. It's not a bad question at all. Much like our ignorance of the time of the second coming, this question should keep us on our toes. 
desiring to draw closer and closer to Jesus with hopeful anticipation and ever filling and refilling our vessels. So I don't want to drop that big question bomb without offering some kind of answers or indications. <laughs> Here's the big one. And again, Pastor Rob prayed this. Pretty cool. What must I do to be saved? You may have heard this, what I'm about to read, a thousand times. And that's not overstating it. You really may have heard this a thousand times. Hear it again. Or you may have never heard this before in your life, and you're hearing these words of Christ for the first time. Hear it now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Acts 16, right, an angel miraculously frees Paul and Silas from prison, and a stunned prison guard looks at them, and what's the first thing he asks? He took them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Yes, it is that simple. I recently watched a video on YouTube where um, somebody asked Pastor John MacArthur, how do I know I'm saved? So for our purposes today, for, for uh, a focus on how we must have this heart, it was, it was insightful to know that these might be some of the heart implications to say that I'm one of the wise and not one of the foolish, that I'm having my vessels filled with the Spirit. Uh, Pastor MacArthur had this to say, the first evidence of our faith is love. What do you love? Do you love the Lord? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? This is the first implication. We can go right back to John 3, 16. For God loved us, and we in return love him. So there's an indication that you're filling up your vessels. Love. Another is humility. A true, ever-searching, ever-growing understanding of the undeserved gospel of grace. A constant, humble awareness of our own sin. And the Apostle Paul articulates this very well in another very famous, very um, oft-used scripture from 1 Timothy. He says it very clear here. 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the worst. There is a, a humility there that understands who he is 
and what the gospel means. Another indicator is obedience. Do you love and long to obey the Lord? This is not to be understood, just to be clear, in obedience in the sense that we need to earn our salvation. We'll never be perfect. But the indicator here is to look honestly at our trajectory of our life. Are we being obedient? Are we looking for direction, not perfection? Another good indicator, the final one, are trials. What can your faith survive? These are important questions to be asking ourselves. Do you have a faith that will stand testing when the crap hits the fan and cancer or death or any of the terrible things that we have on this side of heaven come up? Are you able to say, like Job, though you slay me, yet I will trust you? Here's a piece of good news. These aren't just indicators of our readiness. These are the things that keep us ready. These are the things that keep filling and refilling our hearts with the Holy Spirit. They indicate our readiness. They keep us ready. Quick side note. Uh, one other piece of this parable that I thought was interesting and I don't want to step past uh, is that all ten of the virgins slept. And that's an interesting addition because a lot of times in scripture we see sleep as a negative thing, right? They'll say many have slept or, or you might even go to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And see Jesus with the disciples and they're falling asleep. And he's like, what are you doing? Wake up. You're not supposed to be sleeping. In this sense, uh, I think it's interesting to note that sleep is not a negative thing. In fact, it may represent waiting or it may represent the passage of time or maybe just normal life. One commentator wrote, the fact that all the virgins were sleeping when the call came, indicates that it doesn't matter what you're doing when Christ returns. We may be working, eating, sleeping, pursuing leisure activities. Whatever it is, we must do so in such a way that we don't have to go, I need to quickly make things right when he comes. So ask yourself this question too. A lot of questions for you today, I'm sorry. How do we keep our hearts in a state of preparedness and filled with the Holy Spirit when we're at work or when we're parenting or watching the latest Marvel movie? Being in a, a good constant state. You know, I think a, a good a way to think about it is we always come back to that verse that says pray without ceasing. And you go, well, I know I can't really do that. I can't constantly be praying. But you're always, in all that you're doing, having a heart of prayer, being constant and mindful of the love and the obedience and the trials and the humility. So the readiness of our hearts is more than one piece, too. There's one other piece to pull out of this passage. Uh, we have some language at Terra that actually kind of lines up with this, the wordage that we use. Uh, the first element being the monastic element, right? So for those of Terra, you know for a while, but when we say that something's monastic, we're talking about the monastery. The, the church, our individualness, the church of the church as Christ. It's an internal piece, we call it. And that's keeping our hearts ready to be with the bridegroom and what it means for Christ-following individuals and what it means for the church. And that's everything we just talked about, is what it means for our hearts. But this parable has another piece. This parable has another piece that's missional. There's an external piece to this as well. And now we come back to it. The ten bridesmaids had a job. 
and five failed. They needed, needed to be ready. And their readiness wasn't about their individual selves just getting into the party. It was dark, it was midnight. Their presence was necessary to prepare the way, to make the way clear, to lead the way. And likewise, we need to be ready. Our world is dark and it is getting darker. Our job is vital, to prepare the way and to make it clear. We're lights in the darkness. It's not just about us. We have a job in keeping our hearts filled. And if a constant, consistent looking for his coming marks our lives, then a dying world should be able to see that. And if they don't, we should be lovingly telling them. Amen? I'm going to invite the band back forward now. I'm going to leave us with one really good scripture passage that articulates a lot of this, what the saving grace and faith looks like in a believer's life. And it's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And as I read this, try to apropos that to everything that we heard today regarding this today's parable. It says this in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself, for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May we not be found going away to make a purchase when Christ returns. What are we filling our hearts with instead of Jesus? Take the time. Take the time. Take the focus. Fill your lamp. And spend the rest of your days building up that extra oil. How? By ever doing the will of the Father. Taking on the character of Christ. And then you get to rest in knowing that Jesus is enough. Keep waiting. Keep watching. And keep working with joy and with anticipation for Christ's return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that hard pieces, Lord, even in those scary moments where we ask ourselves the hard questions, that you show us who you are and who we are in you. And that we can rest. Help us to be ever mindful, to be ever loving and humble and obedient. And that we would keep our hearts filled with your Holy Spirit. And that one day we get to be at the wedding of the groom. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.